morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Good. Uh, our reading today is taken from Exodus 34, uh, verses 29 to 35. Just follow me as I read it to you. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word here this morning. No, thanks, Tom. Morning, everyone. I want to uh, follow that reading with our New Testament reading from the book of 2 Corinthians, just where the Apostle Paul makes a comment and an application from that experience of Moses going into the Lord's presence and his face becoming radiant. From 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 to the end of the chapter. The NLV entitles it, The Greater Glory of the New Covenant. <clears throat> Paul writes, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. And it's not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read... A veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have the privilege to come together as your people, to not only read and hear your word, but to think about it as we are taught it. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and that which is in my mind and heart might be shared by you with your people and that you might achieve your purposes and bring honour and glory to Jesus, that we might see him with ever-increasing glory. We ask in his name. Amen. 
We are continuing our series on the book of Exodus. We are almost at the end. We will conclude it next weekend. This morning we are going to cover verse, chapters 33 and 34. <clears throat> Last weekend, uh, Pastor Brendan took us through chapter 32, which is where famously the Israelites uh, break the covenant. That which God had redeemed Israel for was to save them, to bring them out, to enter into a relationship, a covenant, a binding relationship, but they broke it. Even while the prenups were being drawn up, they sinned. They made the golden calf, which then led them to immorality and debauchery. They're all running around naked, almost it would appear, and having orgies and all sorts of things. Moses is up the mountain and he needs to come down the mountain, sent by God, and when he comes down, he stands at the opening <clears throat> of the entrance to the camp and he says three things. Number one, who is on the Lord's side? And he invites those people to come to him. Number two, strap on a sword. They do so. And then he gives them the command, now go through the camp. Go forward and then return. And I want you to kill anyone who is involved and engaged, whether the instigators or not, but those who are guilty of breaking this covenant. And it's to kill any brother, family member, any friend or any neighbour. Three things Moses says to them, just to remind you of quickly before we move ahead. Who is on the Lord's side? That's number one. That's the choice that we all have to make. You have to decide. You decide once and then you have to continue to do it on a daily basis that you remind yourself that you are to be faithful to him. Like the song we sang, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Have you decided to be on the Lord's side? Are you with God or are you against him? That's what the Lord Jesus says. Those who are not with me are against me. And we will be opposed. Who is on the Lord's side, Moses says? The, Israel, the Levites come out to him, his own particular tribe. And they have to come with this attitude that they are willing to do whatever it is that the Lord wants them to do. So do for us. Have to obey him no matter what. That if we are on his side, then all that we have is at his disposal for him to use us as he determines to achieve his purposes. That's true of all the people who are on the Lord's side. If you're on his side, if you've chosen him, then that's what you will be like. Whatever he wants you to do, you are available for him to do it. It's what Mary said at the wedding in Cana, whatever he says to you, do it. It's what Peter says when Jesus was in the boat. Jesus says, uh, I want to launch out into the deep. No, Lord, we've done it all night. Doesn't work now, it's not the right time. Nevertheless, at your word, if you say so, we will. Even when we don't think it's right, even when we don't, we don't think it's going to make any sense, it's, we're committed to doing what he wants us to do. That's what these Levites are doing. And then thirdly, go through the camp and do exactly what he wants you to do as uncomfortable or as costly as it may be for you. God comes before spouse and family and friends and he's number one. He becomes ahead of all of that. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus says, Matthew chapter 10. I told you the story before. Close friend of mine when I was in high school was a guy named Tony. He was a very good mathematician, much better than me. 
<clears throat> but I became a Christian in my last year at high school and he saw the change in my life and he started asking questions about it so I got him a good news New Testament. He took it home. He took it home over the weekend. He returned it the next week. He gave it back to me. He got as far as Matthew chapter 10. Got to verse 37 where Jesus says, if you don't hate mother, brother, sisters more than me, you are not worthy of me. He closed the New Testament, said, I'm not interested. My mum, my dad are far more important to me and I'm not prepared to hate them. He didn't understand it's Jewish idiom. I tried to explain it to him, but by then his decision was made. The Bible's very clear. God first. Family second. And then down the line. God first. That's true for everybody who says, I'm on the Lord's side. Prepared to do whatever he wants, even at great cost. And then in the midst of that, as Pastor Brandon reminded us, even in wrath, God remembers mercy. Because while 3,000 people is a lot of people to die, it's still only 0.5% of the male population. That's a small number compared to the number who are actually rebelling. That in wrath, God remembered mercy. And he will target the instigators. He will target the guilty, which is what he says in the passage. And then notice, because the Levites had obeyed, because they chose God, because they were obedient, prepared to do whatever he wanted, then God blesses them. God accepts them and takes them to be his special servants, his special ministers to serve him in the tabernacle later on when it's built. Unflinching obedience. Uncompromising devotion. Opposed to sin. We don't do that today in terms of physically with a sword. We don't go through seeing Christians sin and we stab each other. We don't do that. But we use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And it's still about church discipline and it's still about removal where there is a person who is not behaving as they ought to be. That's the equivalent today. Decide. Follow God or not. Your choice. Obey no matter what. Confront sin and stop it. Take a stand for God. Rhonda and I like to relax by watching movies. We saw a movie a long time ago now. Who's seen the movie Night and Day? Don't be ashamed, put your hand up. Night and Day, Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz, a spoof on a James Bond type thing. Put your hand up, don't be ashamed. You people shouldn't be watching movies like that. <laughs> In that movie, there is a great scene in which Tom Cruise, who is like the agent and special skills operative, saving Cameron Diaz, and she's not trusting him, and she wants to get away from him. And he says, with me, like a scale of one to ten. With me, without me. Your chance of survival, with me, up here. Your chance of survival without me, down here. With me, without me. That's a bit like what Moses got with God. Israel, with God, up here, we're going to be successful. Without God, we're in trouble. We don't stand much of a chance. Moses had already prayed and asked God to forgive him in chapter 30. When we come to the end of chapter 30, Moses goes back up the mountain to continue the conversation with God. 3,000 people had been killed, but it wasn't finished. There were lots of people who were still guilty, who still had to be dealt with. As Moses is going up the mountain, I can imagine that he is processing. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? How, 
how do we fix this? He's had the experience that God is a God who is prepared to allow an innocent substitute to take the penalty for the guilty many. He's seen that through the Passover. He's seen it through the sacrifices. And as Moses is going, he, when he appears before God again, he says to him at the end of chapter 30, verse 32, it's a great sin the people have committed. Confesses it, owns up to it. Please forgive us. Appropriate thing to say. If you're not prepared to do that, that's when Pastor Brandon taught us about this last week. If you're not going to forgive us, then blot me, I pray, out of your book. The mediator, standing in the place of the guilty, take my life on their basis. And God couldn't do it. Why not? Well, because Moses wasn't innocent. He was sinful. God will do that, ultimately. There will be one man who will stand in the place and who will give his life for the many, the Lord Jesus. But he was without sin and therefore an acceptable sacrifice. Moses is beginning to get the idea of what it means to be a mediator. Just like Jesus would say later on, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Moses is prepared to do here. God says to him, in these two chapters, you have this marvellous relationship between God and Moses, having a conversation, a dialogue. God says, whoever has sinned against me, they're the ones that I'll blot out of my book. Those who are guilty are the ones who will be punished. And then God says to him, end of the chapter, now get up, go lead the people, uh, go to the place that I told you about. My angel will go before you. When the time comes, I'll punish them for their sin. And then God will send a plague um, at the end of the chapter. And we're not told any details of what it was or when it would happen or whatever else. Who is on the Lord's side? Make a decision. And then Moses, the leader, the mediator, is up the top of the mountain and he's wanting to sort this out. And God has said, okay, I'm going to punish the guilty. What does that mean? God is still speaking at the beginning of chapter 33 and the Lord says, here is some bad news. Moses, leave this place, leave Mount Sinai. You and the people that you brought up out of Egypt and go to the land that I promised to give, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will send an angel before you and I'll drive out the inhabitants. And verse 3, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. And if I go with you, I might destroy you on the way. God says three bad things. And Moses, in close relationship, picks up on it. Go, Moses, leave this place. They're your people, not mine. I'm going to send an angel. Chapter 32, he says, I'm going to send my angel. Now you're getting a lower-ranked ordinary angel. It's going to be you're downgraded. And the bombshell is, and I'm not going. Trip has been booked, God cancels his reservation. I'm not going. And it's devastating. And God gives a reason. He says, because if I go with you, you are a stiff meek people, and I might destroy you on the way. And God also says to Moses, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, then I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, your rings and your earrings and your necklaces and your brooches and all the other fancy stuff you've got on. And I'll decide what to do with you. Moses goes down the mountain. He tells the people. 
When the people heard these distressing words, God's not going with us. We can still go. He's still going to drive out the nations. We still get to inherit the promised land. But God's not coming. When the people heard those distressing words, they began to mourn, to weep. And no one put on any of the ornaments. Verse 6 says, And so the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. The people are repenting, demonstrably. Take note of God's description and evaluate your own heart against this. God says you are a stiff-necked people. It's an analogy, a metaphor, comparing a stiff-necked animal, like an oxen, that will not yield, its neck is stiff, it won't yield to the yoke, it won't, that refuses to put its shoulder to the plough to do what it is the master wants it to do. So Israel will not wear the, or submit to the yoke of obedience to God. You're a stiff-necked, stubborn, defiant people. If I go with you, it might be to the abattoirs. That's what's going to happen to you. God and the people somehow over the 40 days Moses on the mountain have drifted apart. But even with that sad development, notice that God hasn't abandoned them. Not totally, but he certainly seems to be thinking about it. Conjecture. Would this mean, if God doesn't go with them, does this mean the plans for the tabernacle have been put on hold? The tabernacle, the whole point of it was to be a sacred dwelling place for God to be present in the midst of his people. And now if God's not going to be with him, you don't need a tabernacle. Well, it's conjecture and it's probably unlikely, but did this also mean there would be no altar for sacrifice, no labour for cleansing, no lampstand, no table, no incense for prayer, no ark of atonement? Would it all be gone? Well, I assume not, but I'm assuming I think God would have still let them build the tabernacle and all of those other things and they would have had their means of worshipping God but God would not be present. He would be distant. He would be absent. I wonder if the people feel, is this the end of the road? The whole point of Exodus was that God might be with his people, that he might dwell with them. But now think about what God is offering them. It's almost like a test. Just as he has tested Moses on occasion, and he does test us these days too, God is offering them saying, you can go, I'll keep my word, even though I'm cranky with you, even though I'm angry, righteously angry with you, I'll still do the right thing. I gave you my word that I would and I will. You can have the promised land. I'll send an angel, he'll get rid of the nations, and you're on your own. You can have God's blessings without God. That's what many people want today. They want the blessings. They don't want a close personal relationship with God. That's what God seems to be almost offering them. People today will say things like, God, I want you to help me overcome my problems but I don't want to have to connect with you closely and obediently on a daily basis. I don't want to submit to your rule in my life. I want to be in charge of my life. I want you to bless me. I want you to provide for me. I want you to protect me. I want you to do all of those things, defeat my enemies. 
And then when I die, after I've lived my life my way, doing my thing, then when I die, I want to go to heaven and have the room that you have prepared for me. Many today do exactly that. Do exactly that. They may not articulate it like that, but that's what they're doing. It's not God they love, it's the gifts of God. It's very dangerous spiritually. You need to examine yourself if this is true for you. People make a decision to accept Jesus at some point, often in their teenage years, various points in their life. Having decided to accept Jesus to be their saviour, to forgive them for their sin, they then assume or are misinformed that they are saved, safe and secure for eternity. They live for themselves. God has forgiven me my sin, I've been baptised, I've declared it publicly. Now I go and do what I like to do. I'll turn up for church. I might even read the Bible occasionally. I might get involved in service. I may not, uh, whatever. If I have time, it's not a high priority for me. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that those people who are saved, those people who say, I am on the Lord's side, those people will submit to him. They'll be obedient to him. So you can tell a Christian. They walk in obedience. Somebody like um, a co-leader in a church a long, long time ago once said to me a very strong statement. And he got it from somebody else who had passed it on to him. He said, you can always bounce a Christian. By which he meant, and he was a particularly... um, confrontive sort of a person he was more an emotional man he was uh, far more you know up and down and inclined to be depressive but had a heart passion for God and he did not hold back in telling the truth to anybody sometimes insensitively but he would say the truth and his experience was you can always bounce a Christian you can always tell a Christian the truth as uncomfortable as it is because they will always bounce back because a Christian is someone who will submit to truth who will submit to God's word who will do exactly what God wants them to do might be a process might be a bit rough in the, in, the, in the means of it but a true Christian will submit a true Christian is in the process of being sanctified a true Christian is a person who will serve with the gifts that God the Holy Spirit has given them a true Christian is a person who is a conscious steward of the resources and things that God has entrusted to them and that they are accountable for it Israel didn't want the blessings without God. Cyril, like us, they want the blessings, but they wanted it with God. He was far more important than them, than that. So Moses told them, God's not coming. And they repented. They took off their rings, their garments, their... their, um, jewellery and everything else. The very things that they had given to make the golden calf, they're now taking off and putting aside. That's how it works. When we become aware in our life of what's causing us to sin or what enables us to sin, then we agree that this is wrong, I need to stop it, and you put it aside. 
which is why it's an individual walk between you and Jesus, you and God. There are many grey areas in life, Romans chapter 14. And the mistake of the church has been and can be that we come up with rules and regulations that Christians don't. Christians don't play cards, Christians don't go to the cinema, Christians don't bowl, Christians don't have fun on Sundays, Christian, and there's a list. <clears throat> uh, Christian women don't wear jewellery, Christian women don't put on makeup. And on and on and on. They're the lists. None of them are in the Bible. It's an individual heartfelt response between what does God want me to do? And if God wants you to not wear makeup, well then don't wear makeup. If God wants you to not go to the cinema, then don't go to the cinema. But don't make it a rule for other people. That which is causing you to sin or that which is tricky for you, put it aside and be prepared to stand alone, to be on God's side, to do what you believe God wants you to do. But always be open to being teachable, of being corrected. When you're young in the faith, we tend to be black and white and we tend to be more legalistic. But as you mature and grow, you realise there are many things that are grey and it comes down to a personal choice. You have freedom in Christ to be his representative in all sorts of situations. The Israelites put this stuff aside and it would appear from verse 6 that they put it aside permanently. When they left Mount Sinai, they weren't wearing jewellery and that sort of jewellery anymore. They wanted to restore their relationship with God. They wanted to be close to him. They wanted to know God, as Moses is going to reveal in this chapter. And we backtrack and you get a little bit of history. Verses 7 to 11 talks about this thing called a tent of meeting. What used to happen when Moses came out of uh, Egypt, he had a special tent called the tent of meeting, which is where he would go and meet with God. And God would turn up. God would visit him in the tent. And you'll have numerous references to it throughout Exodus. Ultimately, that tent of meeting will become the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The place where God comes and where the mediator meets with God in God's presence. But the tabernacle is not built yet. So this is a separate, smaller tent. It's removed from the camp. It's not in the midst of the camp because it's a sinful camp. And so God can't dwell amongst sin. And so the tent is removed. It's a distance from the camp. But what Moses would do was go out to the tent. And if anybody wanted to inquire of God, they had to leave the sinful camp, separate themselves from their sin, go and inquire of God through the mediator and ask or find out or pray or give or whatever it was. And that's how it would happen. And verses 7 to 11 reminds us that when the people saw Moses heading out to the tent of meeting, they would stand at their tents And it said, and they would worship, they would bow down. Because then the the cloudy pillar would come and stop at the entrance to the tent of meeting while God met with Moses. It was visible, physical. You could see it. So Moses comes down from the mountain. He tells the people, the Lord's not going with us. You are a stiff-necked people. And if God came with us, He'd wipe you out. Well, Moses wants to continue the conversation. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord at the tent of meeting, after Israel has repented, Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You said my angel, then you said an angel, and 
Who? Who's going? I'd like to know. You have said that you know me by name and I have found, you have found favour with me. Verse 13. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. And then note the boldness of Moses. He says to God, remember. He says to God, remember. Remember, these are your people. Because God said, you brought them out of Egypt. They're yours. I don't want anything to do with them. Moses reminds God, this nation is your people. Because Israel had repented, now God is able to say in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What we miss in English is that what God is saying, hey Moses, I'm going to go with you. I'm not going with them. I'm going to go with you. And I'm going to give you individually, singularly, rest. Moses then continues to pray. Moses says, verse 15, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? I don't know if you underline your Bible, I don't know if you're highlighted in your screens or not, whatever, but verse 17, you ought to highlight, underline, write in your journal, remember the reference, Exodus 33, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I know your heart, I know your motives, I know that I am your first love. I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you. And then Moses says, please show me your glory. And you have that famous story where God says, I'll show you my glory but you can't see my face because if you see my face, no one can see my face and live, but I'll pass by put you in the cleft of the rock and my hand will cover you and as I pass by you'll see me from behind it's interesting the hand of God protects him from the presence of God it's God protecting him from God it's Jesus protecting us from God's wrath God protecting us from God demonstrating and revealing himself to us then in that tent of meeting having Heard Moses' request to see more and more of God. <clears throat> God says, now I want you to make two stone tablets and I'm going to write the Ten Commandments on them again, the ones that you broke. Be ready in the morning and come back up the mountain and we will um, give you the experience of seeing me in a sense. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked. God talking, praying with the Lord. The Lord listening. And the truth for us is that we are in just as, and if not a more so, privileged position than Moses. And we can talk to God about anything, and in fact we should. That he is listening to us. He's waiting. Every day, when we wake up, when we go down, and all throughout the day, he's interested in us 
I will do the very thing that you ask. God takes us seriously. And he's responsive to our requests. Now, you can wrestle with that theologically, but that's what the scripture says quite simplistically. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has been working to try and restore us to a much closer relationship with him. He's always trying to find a way that he can bring us into his family, but we interrupt the progress of that by our sin and by our wrong choices. But God doesn't give up like in this chapter. Even here in Exodus chapter 33, he's still talking to Moses. He observes the people's repentance. Soon the tabernacle will get built. And in chapter 40, at the end of the chapter, next week's message, the presence of God comes down into the tabernacle and God is in the midst of his people. And even that's just a glimpse that ultimately in the person of Jesus, God will come into our world and tabernacle amongst us. And now the above us God of the Old Testament becomes a with us God in the person of Jesus and becomes the in us God of his Holy Spirit. The book of Revelation ends the story, the plan, God's master plan of salvation by a new heaven and a new earth and God coming down and dwelling with his people, God and us together again, like it was back in the beginning. That's God's agenda. That's what he's on about. But he wants people to come back into a very close relationship with him. And then beautifully, like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, you know, the love chapter, then we will see him face to face. The very thing Moses wanted, we will get with him then. Then we will see God. Then we'll be glorified, purified. It's a great verse. Show me your glory. And so then in chapter 34, the Lord does show him his glory. Let me just read you this. The Lord came down in a cloud on top of the mountain, stood there with him. There's an amazing image. The Lord, in some manifestation of his presence, stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he's not a God who leaves the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children, the children's children, for the sin of their parents, or the sin of the parents, to the third and fourth generation. Time is going, but that expression is a Hebrew way of expressing. It's not saying that if I commit a sin, that God's going to punish my son for it. Not saying that. What it's saying is that if I commit a sin and my son copies my example and he commits the sin of his father and then his child commits the sin of their grandfather, then God will punish the guilty, the one who did the sin, the one who did the sin, and the one who did the sin, and he will do so to the third and fourth generation. It's not only a Hebrew way of speaking, but it's also a biblical truth that sin has an influence that contaminates. Watch your examples. None of us are perfect, but we need to be aware of this biblical principle that we are to set a consistent model as best we can, and particularly parents at home, and then also in our church family. Compassionate, gracious, faithful, loving, forgiving. 
Moses says, Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our sin and our wickedness and take us as your inheritance, make us your children, make us part of your forever family. And the Lord says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Verse 11, just obey what I command you today. Obey me. Verse 17 of chapter 34, don't make any idols. Golden calf. Verse 27, and the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with the words that I have given you, I make a covenant with you in Israel. It's the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, eating and, and without eating or drinking water. And then God wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Teach me your ways so that I might know you, Moses says. Show me your glory. Show me more and more of what you like. Let me finish by saying this. <clears throat> Moses had already experienced had great experiences with God on his life's journey so far. He encountered God at the burning bush. He experienced God through the plagues and even on the top of Mount Sinai, the first 40 days, and then even before the golden calf. But Moses wanted more. And it appears to me that seems to be the direction of the New Testament. It seems that when we know God, when you really know him, you want to know more of him. So attractive and so beautiful is he. Spurgeon used to teach and say that even the most devout followers of Jesus are only wading ankle deep in the ocean of the being of God. And God invites us to dive into the depths, to know him more and more. We will never know God exhaustively, of course. He is beyond limits. But we can know him more. What does it mean to know God? Well, you can know God. Many people know that there is a God. Some people know some facts about God. And it's interesting here, Moses says, I want to see you. Moses doesn't see God, but he hears him. Because God proclaims before him the Lord, compassionate and loving, forgiving. And we're in exactly the same boat. We don't see God, but we hear God. We hear God through his word. We hear God through his spirit speaking into our life. And it's not, we won't have the visual until glory. So we know some simple awareness of God. You can know about God in your head, know some facts and repeat them. Or you can know God personally by experience. I've used this illustration before. I keep saying that in case you think I've got dementia and I can't remember what I've said. <laughs> Steve Waugh used to be the captain, Australian cricket captain. Agreed? I've never met him. But I know Steve Waugh was the Australian cricket captain. That's first level of knowledge. I know something about him. Second level. I know some of the facts about Steve Waugh, which we don't need to go into detail now, but... Rhonda taught with a lady whose name was Margaret, married to a guy called Mark. And Mark was best friends with Steve Wall. And I went out to dinner once with Rhonda and the teaching staff at the school she was at. 
And Mark and Margaret were there. I sat with Mark and I was chatting to him and he was telling me all sorts of things about Steve Wall. He knows Steve Wall personally. He has meals with, they go on holidays together, they do things together. I know about Steve Wall. I have some limited knowledge of him, but Mark actually knows him personally. So too with our relationship with God. People out there in the world, in Australia, many of them might know that there is a God, even if they say there isn't. Many people know things about God. But if you're one of the people who have said, I'm on God's side, I want Jesus as my Lord and Saviour, if you're passionate about following and seeking him, then you're getting to know him personally. And if that's the truth, then you, like Moses, I would fully expect that you will have a burning desire in you that you want to know more about him. Listening to his word. I'm finishing with this. Steve, uh, Steve, um, A.W. Tozer said, in the 20th century and the 21st century, my words, the church and Christian activities and programs, our busyness, have replaced relating and reverence and responding to him. It's true, isn't it? We name the name of Jesus, we follow him, but our lives are so busy, we're caught up in things that we are neglecting our first love. Moses in this chapter has this amazing closeness with God. And God says to him, whatever you ask, because you ask, I'm going to do it. Because you're on my side. You'll do whatever it is that I want you to do. You'll obey no matter what. Like Israel, if you sin, when you become aware of it, put it aside. And don't let it hinder you in your relationship with God. Don't be satisfied with God's blessings, but always be seeking God's person. And like Moses, as he would go to the tent to converse with God, so draw aside. That tent, which became the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, now indwells us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he indwells us. This is where the tent, the presence of God is. And we are to commune with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this word and for the wonderful experience that we can have of knowing you. Lord, grant the desire of our hearts that we might know you and know you more, know you more deeply, more personally, more intimately. Lord, if there is sin, convict us and assist us in making the right choice to cut it off, to put it aside, to forsake it. Examine our hearts, Lord, with a question of who is on your side and help us to choose. And in so choosing, we know that we need to be prepared to do whatever it is you want, no matter what it is. Lord, work in us, convict us, change us, draw us closer to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.